I want to share a little bit about our guest speaker today. Uh, our guest speaker is someone that I've known for many years. I came on staff about 15 years ago and was new, trying to figure out what it's like to be a missions pastor. Uh, Ralph was a missions pastor at Westminster Chapel in Bellevue for 25 years. And he kind of invited me into a group of other mission leaders in the Seattle area. And for the last really 15 years, I've had the opportunity to meet with different leaders, to be mentored, to have some information kind of poured into my life. Uh, Ralph was in a vice president, one of the vice presidents with Union Gospel Mission for five years. And now he's on staff with Olive Crest that works with orphan care, with foster kids, and adopt. Um, Ralph's been a huge impact in my life. Ralph, thanks for um, being a, a blessing in my life and ministering to me. Would you guys welcome Ralph Roland? <laughs> well, good morning. It's good to be here. I was telling your pastor this morning, this is the first Sunday morning service, gathered service I have been to since the pandemic hit. So it's, it's good to be with God's people again. So I, I'm going to hang out for a while and I just kind of soak it in. But it is great, great to be with you here. I, like John said, I've known John for so many years. I kind of taught him everything he knows, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's great to be a partner with your church. Your church is such uh, a great church in your community. And I've, you guys do great things. And I'm glad to be here with you here on Mission Sunday uh, to talk about a topic that is so, so important here in the community of Kent. And so... Um, when this opportunity came up, I was really excited just to be able to do that. So uh, I've got to make sure I use this clicker here. I want to start out this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, vulnerable kids and families. I'm going to start out just talking a little bit about prevention. And um, I'm going to throw out a question for you guys to think about. And that is this. Have you ever had someone step in at the right time and at the right moment to prevent a disaster from taking place in your life. Can you think of that person who just was right there when things really could have gone badly and they stepped in and, and prevented a disaster? How many can think of a person like that? Yeah, thank God for them, right? Well, we don't have time for you to share all your stories this morning, but since I'm speaking, I get to share my prevention story. And it happened back in the early 1980s. I was a, a rookie youth pastor uh, in Salem, Oregon. And our team decided, our youth team decided, let's take uh, our, our students on a rafting trip down the Deschutes River in central Oregon. And uh, because none of our team had ever uh, had much rafting experience, we decided, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead of time. We're going to do a raft captain's trip, and so we'll get the, the experience we need. And so we loaded all of the gear and the people into two vans, and we parked one van at our final destination, and then we loaded up everybody into the other van, and we kind of looped around to find a good place to put in. And uh, driving, you know, a few miles up river, we finally saw a nice sandy beach, kind of a wide spot in the river, unloaded the gear, and started, you know, blowing up our rafts. And uh, sometime during that time, uh, a Forest Service truck pulled up, a guy in a uniform got out, and he walked really briskly right towards our group. Um, and uh, the first words out of his mouth is, what are you guys think you're doing? Well, I mean, it's kind of obvious. We're going rafting, right? That's what I said. We're going rafting. woo -hoo! And he said, well, not here you're not. I said, well, well, why not? He says, because about a half a mile down the river is Shears Falls, and you will not survive it. I'm like, oh, 
Can you, t- can you tell us a better place to put in? He, he suggested a safer place to put in. We loaded back up in the van and made it half a mile down to Shears Falls. And this was what we found. Just the beginning set of waterfalls that uh, I'm sure would have been disastrous in our lives. Well, we were so thankful that this guy showed up just at the right time and the right place because I can't imagine what would have happened if we would have tried to to shoot these falls. But other people are not so fortunate. And I think, you know, there's really a lot of ways people can go over the falls in life, right? John had mentioned that for, for five years I worked for Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, working with people who would experience addiction and homelessness and domestic violence. And uh, I saw too often the devastating impact that this had on their lives. Uh, frequently I would go out in the evenings and uh, hand out, uh, you know, food and clothing on the streets. And there were nights when I would come home and I couldn't sleep because of what I had seen that evening. It was just so difficult. And I began to ask myself the question, how do we prevent this from happening? What can we do upstream that can keep some people from going over these horrible falls uh, in their life? Well, as I got to know the men and women who were involved in our UGM recovery programs, uh, I I began to learn about what had brought them to this place of brokenness in their lives. Um, Oftentimes, uh, almost always, there was some kind of childhood uh, trauma, or, or experience uh, that it had a, a huge impact on their life, and often in the context of their family. And so there would be uh, abuse, um, addiction, neglect, domestic violence, uh, incarceration, all these kinds of things uh, that really kind of set them on a course for this waterfall. Well, our, our mantra at, at UGM was that people run out of relationships uh, and long before they run out of resources. That homelessness isn't a resource issue, it's really a relationship issue. And people end up being isolated without a safety net. And I became more and more convinced that, um, that brokenness, if it happens within the family system, then, then healing probably needs to take place there as well. Uh, and that's what ultimately brought me to, to Olive Crest, where I am now, is to say, how can we prevent uh, these horrible issues from happening in people's lives, and how can we help them find healing and hope, hope again in, in their lives? And uh, some of the downstream uh, impacts of homelessness are, are, are clear. So the question is, how can we prevent people from going over the falls in our community? I wanted to find one picture that was out of Kent, so that second picture there is, is a place in Kent. But here's the downstream impact of family trauma. We know that 60% of people who are caught up in human trafficking come from the child welfare system. 33% of children who age out of foster care are homeless within the first year. And that's just the people who are unsheltered. It actually goes up to over 60% of people who are just unstably housed. And then 60% of children from the system will be incarcerated. So you can see the downstream impacts uh, are really devastating. So, so the question this morning is, how can we prevent this? What if the church showed up at the right time and the right place 
and was able to step in and help people avoid this disaster. And that's what I want to focus in on today. Prevention for vulnerable children and families. And there is a prevention plan that, that unfolds from the scriptures. And we're going to be in several different passages this morning looking at how God uh, has designed a prevention plan. And this prevention plan is based on the concept of biblical hospitality. Now let me do a little word association here for a second. When you hear that word hospitality, what immediately kind of pops into your mind? You hear hospitality. What's that? Caring, sharing, food. food. Of course, there's always going to be food involved. I don't know if this person kind of pops into your mind at all there. (laughs) Often we think in terms of, you know, um, entertaining or etiquette or style. And uh, I think sometimes in the church, we confuse hospitality with fellowship. And so let me give you a definition here. This, when you see the Greek word in, for hospitality in the New Testament, it's the word philozenia. You recognize probably a couple words in there. Philo is where we get our, it's the word for love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Xenia, Zeno, you may have heard of someone who is xenophobic. They're, they're afraid of strangers. So when we see the word hospitality throughout Scripture, it is the love of strangers. And it actually goes beyond just that, the emotion and the, and the feeling of, of that, but it's actually welcoming strangers. By God's design, uh, what hospitality is, it's so much more than just, just fellowship. Um, it describes a social compact that's really required for the survival of society. And it rescues people from the harmful impacts of isolation. And I don't know about you, but, but one thing I know is that if we've learned anything from this pandemic. It's that people do not thrive in isolation from each other. Boy, have we experienced the truth of that? So this morning we're going to look through some scriptures, uh, that, and we're going to begin to unpack three truths about uh, biblical hospitality. And then we want to specifically apply those to vulnerable children and families. And so the first one I want us to see is that biblical hospitality is initiated by God himself. It's his idea. It is his plan that he sets in motion. And if you would, turn over to Psalm 68. We're going to be looking at just the first couple of verses there. Now, this is actually a fairly difficult psalm to interpret. Uh, It kind of jumps around a bit, and there are some people that think maybe this was even kind of a compilation. But we see in the first few verses um, some interesting things. Some think that this may have been written for the occasion when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into Jerusalem. It was a psalm of procession. And the opening verses here describe who God is against and who God is for. So you see in the passage there that he is, uh, he is against his enemies. It says he blows them away like smoke. He says the, wick, the wicked kind of melt like wax before him. I think of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the, these faces just kind of melt there. But, but then, on the other hand, it talks about who he is for. He is the father of the fatherless, a defender of of widows. 
And in a society that was so strongly patriarchal, a woman without a husband or children without a father were outcasts. They were without identity, resources, protection. And so God says, to those who are the most vulnerable, I will become their protector. I will become their identity. I will be their advocate. It says God says God in his holy habitation, which is an interesting little verse there. In the place where God dwells, he makes room for vulnerable children and women. He surrounds them in a safe relationship. He is for them. But then he goes on. It's not just in, in heaven where he makes room, but he, he has a plan for earth as well. And it says in the next verse, he sets the lonely in families. That's what the NIV, I think the ESV says, he settles the solitary in a home. God asks his people to take them in, to make room for them in their hearts and in their home, in their family. And in a time when there really was no child welfare system, God's people are to make room in their hearts and homes for the most vulnerable. Now, I learned all about uh, biblical hospitality from my mother. In fact, this week I'm going down to Northern California to help her celebrate her 95th birthday. And uh, all her life, as long as I've known my mom, she is the friendliest person I know and the most hospitable. Um, she practiced it in her heart, uh, in her home, and sometimes even in her car. And um, we grew up in the Bay Area of California, and most often we walked to school. It wasn't too far, but, but it was fairly far. And the weather was usually good, but on rainy days, my mom would get out the station wagon and she would pick us up so we didn't have to walk uh, to school in the, in the home from school in the rain. But she also had this annoying habit of picking up other kids on the way home. And sometimes that could be really embarrassing. Now, my mom didn't care who they were. Uh, you know, uh, she would offer them a ride regardless of their social status or appearance. I mean, she just had a heart for kids who were out there in the rain. And I remember uh, one day she was driving home and there was a, a boy walking home in the rain and he had on one of these yellow slickers. Remember these things? He looked kind of like a little uh, sailor. And it had the kind of the, the hat you would wear too where you know, only had kind of a slit for the eyes. Very functional, but not fashionable at all. And I was in junior high at the time, and I know I would rather walk home from school in my underwear than to be caught dead in a yellow slicker like that. But I could see uh, my mom was slowing down to pick him up. And I just cried out, Mom, no, we don't know him. <laughs> and she turned around and gave me the dirtiest look. Uh, she said, scoot over. We're giving him a ride home. And I knew once my mom saw a kid in need, there was no talking her out of it. And so we scooted over, and, and he got in. And this is kind of what I see in this verse, that God has this heart for people in need. And when he sees people in need, he, he says to his people, scoot over, you know, make room. I'm going to place them in a family, in a home. And so we see that this, this plan for biblical hospitality is, is rooted in God's heart, but it's also re, uh, rooted in his redemptive story. In Leviticus uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 33 and 34, um, probably, probably some of those pages may still be stuck together in your, in your Bible, but uh, 
as it says this. It says, when the stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who, res- who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. And then in this next little sentence, he, he, he gives the reason why. And he says, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And God, as God lays out his plan, he reminds Israel that uh, they once were strangers from God. They were separated in the land of Israel, and he, he welcomes them into his covenant and into his land. And now he asks in return, and now you are to welcome those who are strangers in your land. And you see this throughout the scriptures. When God blesses us, he asks us to pass on that blessing to others. When God forgives us, we are to forgive others. When God loves us first, we are to love others. And when God welcomes us, we are to welcome others. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul has kind of a similar uh, idea. He reminds us that we were once strangers from God. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And yet in Christ, God welcomes us into his family. He places us in that family and asks that we do the same with others. Welcoming a child into your home really is a reflection of what God has done for you. And I think also a demonstration to the world. We we welcome vulnerable children and families not simply because the need is so great, but because our God is so good and he has given us so much. So that's where it begins. It begins with God himself. But the second thing I want us to see is that it is demonstrated by Jesus. Initiated by God, demonstrated by by Jesus. And if you think about it, welcoming sinners and outcasts to the table of relationship uh, really is probably one of the most distinctive and sometimes most inflammatory aspects of the teaching and ministry of Jesus. That's what he was about. He talks about that he ate with sinners, that he welcomed those who were outcasts. In fact, if you look through the Gospels, they're really lined. They're packed with stories uh, about strangers and how Jesus made room for them. And you see this pattern begin to emerge in Jesus' ministries, that there's, there's crowds of people following Jesus, but he has the discernment to see into that crowd uh, and to be able to see those who had been socially isolated. Uh, and if you think, just a few examples that I thought through this week. Uh, we think about a woman who was isolated by her sin, a woman taken in adultery, that, that Jesus makes room for her. We think about a, a Samaritan woman that he met at the well who was isolated by her past. She was all by herself when she should have been with, with others. We think about a a tax collector who Jesus saw had climbed up into a tree. And here's a guy who was isolated by his lack of ethics. And Jesus says, hey, come down because I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to make room for you. And then those who were isolated by disease. I think of the, the paralytic by the pool who was stranded by the hopelessness of his situation. And yet Jesus notices him and heals him. 
he was able to look into the crowds and see the most vulnerable, the most helpless. In fact, it talks about he could see those who were helpless and harassed. And his heart is moved to compassion. He literally felt, felt it inside his stomach. And it motivated him to, to welcome those in, into life. In fact, even his last recorded conversation, he welcomes a criminal into his kingdom. So that really marks the ministry of Jesus. And we also see in the, in the Gospels that the same welcome that he extends to those who are helpless and outcasts, uh, he extends to helpless children. We see in, in kind of two parallel accounts, one in Matthew and, and one in Luke, uh, when, when, when the parents were bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. And if you would turn over to Matthew 19, verse 13, we'll take a look at this passage. We see Jesus extending this welcoming touch to children. And I imagine the line probably was pretty long. I mean, you know, you can just imagine. I was at the uh, Carpinino Brothers corn maze yesterday. And uh, the line to get into the corn maze just stretched for, for miles. And I, I begin to think, I hate lines. <laughs> I have no patience. And I imagine that's kind of how the disciples felt. Like these moms and dads were just, you know, lined up with their kids, uh, just hoping that Jesus would touch them. And his, his, his touch was not a, necessarily an act of healing but an act of identification and acceptance. In God's kingdom, those who are most helpless are valued and welcomed. In fact, in the parallel passage in Luke 18, it says even infants were being brought to him. So I think the idea there is even the most helpless, those who had really nothing to be able to offer to others, were being welcomed. And the disciples finally get fed up. I mean, as they see how long it's going to take this uh, Jesus to be able to interact with all these families. They finally said, that's enough. It says there, they rebuked them. So to me, that looks like, go away. <laughs> Get lost. Jesus has more important things to do, more, more important people to teach, and more important people to heal. But Jesus steps in and he says, don't send them away. Don't hinder them from coming to see me. Make room for them. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And while it is the children themselves that uh, Jesus welcomes for their own sake, I think such as these points beyond them to those who are willing to come to Jesus as a helpless child. He's trying to make a point here. He's saying, in the same way these kids are welcomed, if you come to me as a child, you're welcomed. When we welcome a child into our home, we welcome Jesus. In that great passage in Matthew 25, Jesus explicitly identifies himself with the stranger. In verse 16, he says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. And the people in that parable uh, who consider themselves righteous asked, uh, Lord, when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? And the king replies, whatever you did to the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now think about this for a second here in our, our current situation with the child welfare crisis in Washington. There's about 9,000 kids uh, who are in the child welfare system, many of them still waiting uh, for a home to be placed in. 
And if you think about it, children continue to be dismissed. There are hundreds of kids who, for no fault of their own, are still waiting to be invited in. And because there's not enough homes, some are spending nights in hotel rooms, others in group homes, because there's just a shortage of homes. And if what Jesus says in Matthew 25 is true, if we look closely, we encounter Jesus among these children, waiting to be welcomed in. So we see that uh, it's initiated by the, by the Father himself. It is demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus. And lastly, it is activated through the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see soon after in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descends on the church and the church is launched that day and uh, amazing things begin to happen. The church immediately begins to, to grow and to function. It says that they, they gathered in the temple courts, and they, uh, but they also met in homes. That's where the body life was starting to happen, that the ministry was happening in the homes as well. And we see in Acts 2 right away a, a radically different kind of community empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it, it kind of defied the status, boundaries, and distinctions of the larger society of that day. And uh, it recognized the value of every person based on their standing in Christ. It provided practical care for the poor and for the sick. And it offered hospitality to the stranger. I wanted to, to read a, a quote that I came across this week. It said, Hospitality to needy strangers distinguished the early church from its surrounding environment. Noted as exceptional by Christians and non-Christians alike. Offering care to strangers became one of the distinguishing marks of the authenticity of the Christian gospel and the church. It was a sign that what was happening there was, was, was real and powerful. This idea that what they were doing actually authenticated the gospel. And you see this, this authentication of the gospel uh, through hospitality taking place in Acts 6. And... Uh, and it was based on how the most vulnerable in that church were being cared for. And if you remember the, the passage here, you can turn over there. In Acts 6, we really have the first challenge to this uh, new fledgling church that arises. Uh, because the widows who were from the Greek culture uh, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So here's a really vulnerable group in that church. There was no other place in society that cared for them. But the church was stepping up to care for widows. But... All of a sudden, the test is this. As the church begins to emerge from Judaism, will it only look out for its own dominant culture, or will it embrace the Gentile, the stranger, and offer the same care and protection? And so they gather together. They pray about it. They fast, and they come up with a good idea. They decide to put their very best people on this issue, people who are, are filled with the Spirit, people who have... Uh, who are wise, who have a lot of great qualities. And everybody was in, of one mind. This is the way. We're going to do our best to care for all the vulnerable people uh, in our church. And I'm always kind of taken by the impact here, is that when the church does what the church is supposed to do, when, it's, uh, when it lives out that calling, it said that the word of God continued to spread. But it also says the number of disciples increased. 
People saw something there that they couldn't explain any other way. And the most interesting part of this passage, it says, is a large number of priests became obedient. And I think that that's the case because these priests knew the Old Testament scriptures and they understood who God was and how Israel was to offer a welcome to strangers. And they saw that actually being fulfilled in front of them and they became obedient to the faith. And I believe this same need for authentication of the gospel exists in our world today. I think it's interesting. I think maybe in, in previous uh, generations, the, the question was, as people considered the gospel of the churches, is it true? Can it be proved? I, I think the question that people are asking today is, is it real? Does it make a difference? Does it change the world around us? I think this is the point that James is trying to make in, in that passage there in James 1.27 where it says, this is pure and, and faultless religion that you visit orphan and widows in their distress. I think what he's saying there is that the true, the true sign that what you have is real is when it reaches out to care for those who are most vulnerable uh, in our world, who have really nothing to offer back. And when the church does that, it becomes an example to the world around us. We see throughout the New Testament that welcoming the stranger is really built into the blueprint of the local church. Hospitality is listed uh, as one of the qualifications of its leaders, that its leaders must love strangers. And I think it's so exciting today to see how many pastors and elders uh, are becoming foster parents who are adopting kids. And I know you have this in your church here. What a great example to the body of welcoming uh, the most vulnerable. In the letters uh, that are written to the churches, we are encouraged to practice hospitality, practice the love of strangers. Romans 12, 13 says, love must be sincere. It must be true. It must be real. Practice hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 is a, is a very interesting passage. I wish we had more time to, to jump into it this morning. But here it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. There's something that this refers back to, to Abraham in the Old Testament when he invited strangers into his tent that were, ended up being angels. I think the, the, the issue there, or the advice there is to say, treat strangers as if they were messengers from God, as, as if they were angels. And when God's people uh, welcome the strangers, I think especially if the stranger is a helpless child, it's, it's a really beautiful thing, isn't it? At Olive Crest, we do a monthly orientation. It's called Foster Care 101. And um, nowadays, we're doing it on Zoom. It's not, it's not as uh, compelling as when we were able to do that uh, in, in person. But still, there are a lot of people who are interested in welcoming a child into their home. Well, this last Wednesday, we had a, an orientation, and we had nine families, which is a really big gathering for us, all on Zoom, so you could see all the different, you know, families in these different squares. Uh, and in one of the squares, uh, there were two, two women. And um, one of the questions we always ask at the beginning of, of our orientation is, uh, what brought you to the orientation today? And these, these two ladies were the first to raise their hand, and the first lady says, well, I've already raised my kids. My youngest son is 26. 
We still have a house with lots of bedrooms, and we want to fill it with kids and fill it with God's love. And I thought, oh, that's a great, that's great, that's awesome. And she said, and this is my mother. And this lady must have been in her 70s. And, and we said, well, what's, are you just here for moral support? She says, no, I want to be a foster parent too. She says, I have a room with six, I have a home with six bedrooms, and I want to fill those rooms with kids in God's love. And I just, the, the, this image kind of popped into my mind. It was the image of still waters. He leads me beside still waters. And I thought, I thought of all the kids who are caught up in this turbulent time in their life. They're going through the rapids right now. And they're going to find themselves uh, in the home of this mom and, and her mom. And they're going to hopefully experience the calm, the calm that comes after the, the turbulent waters. What a beautiful thing that that is when uh, we do that. Well, as we uh, kind of begin to wrap this up, um, I want to see, what do we do? What do we do here in Kent? Let's localize this uh, for a second here. What, what is happening in Kent? Interestingly enough, the 98302, nine, is that the 98032? That's Kent, right? <laughs> okay, a little mistake there. The 98032 zip code has the one, one of the highest numbers of kids coming into the child welfare system. Uh, for, for example, uh, in 2018, I don't have the numbers for 2019, it was over 100 kids in 2000, I think it was 118 kids. The challenge is that over 80% of these kids are placed outside of the community because there just aren't enough available homes. And there is a lot of trauma that adds to an already traumatic situation, as you can imagine, as kids are not only removed from their homes, but removed from their communities. If they change school, it's estimated that kids lose four to six months of academic progress when they change schools. And so there's actually an organization here uh, in Kent. It's called Keeping Kids in Kent. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. Uh, but it's people that, it's organizations that are getting together, businesses, uh, civic organizations to say, how can we keep our kids uh, here in Kent? It seems overwhelming sometimes. Uh, but we really believe the local church is God's plan, the hope of the world, and that your church really is the hope of the neighborhood. I'm always struck when I pull into your parking lot because here's your church sign, and then right underneath it is the sign for, for DSHS, the, you know, DCYF, the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, that you guys share a parking lot. And I'm thinking there are so many great things that are happening right here. What if, what if the church really is the answer to all the kids who are coming through that waterfall in life. And so uh, we like to say at Olive Crest, uh, when we think about the child welfare crisis, is that everybody can do something. The question is, what's your something? And we kind of lump it into three categories. Uh, family, friends, and champions. If you're a family, like these two ladies who said, we want to welcome kids into our home, you can open your heart and home. And there's that verse from Matthew 25. Maybe God hasn't called you to be a foster family, um, but you're saying, but I could do something to really support a foster family. And we're going to be talking about that. There's a great group at your church here that's developing care communities. Come on up, Rosie. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how do you support a foster family. And I'm going to throw out this statistic that 50% of foster families close their license after one year 
or one placement. And when they're surveyed, the number one reason is is because uh, they just don't have enough support. They feel isolated and overwhelmed. And so Calvary is, is involved in a, in a plan to, to raise up this wraparound communities that we're going to talk more about. Uh, the last one is champions, to offer prayer and provide resources. And um, we really covet your prayer. There's some prayer guys out in the back if you stop by the Olive Crest table. And provide resources. When you donate to Olive Crest, you help keep the biblical in hospitality. <laughs> and we really feel like that is the best thing that we offer our foster parents is, is the scriptures and our particular worldview, which is based on the Bible. And so many Christian foster care organizations are, are, are going out of business because they just can't afford to keep, keep doing that. So Olive Crest is really uh, committed to continuing to be a Christian foster care uh, agency. So, Rosie, uh, so tell us a little bit about what's happening here at Calvary uh, as far as your family advocacy ministry. Describe a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, so thank you all for being here, and um, thank you, Ralph. Um, we, our church has made foster care and kids in foster care a priority for about four years now. It's something that we've really invested in as a congregation. Um, and so one thing that we have done over the years is we've offered a support group for families in the community who are, um, who are fostering or have adopted children and um, just need support um, from a biblical perspective. So this is led by Garth and Carol Gill who are out in the lobby and they um, have a lesson every month. We, we're on break right now, but they, they just, um, we share from the scriptures together and we kind of um, help each other through hard times. Um, we also have, um, sorry, um, yeah, so we're, we have the foster, the, the support group, and then we're also um, doing the care communities. Yeah, talk to us more about care communities. What, what does that look like? So a care community is a group of four to eight individuals that have joined together to, um, to support a foster or adoptive family together. Um, we launched our first one in the, the spring and summer. We actually had a group of people who got trained together, and then we kind of said, do we want to wait till the pandemic is over? And the whole group was unanimous, no, we need to start this now. So we launched our first care community in um, early summer, and it's just been such a blessing. We've really seen, the, seen God work in miraculous ways in the family that we're serving together. Um, and so... That our, our, we actually have a little video for you guys. Um, our care community volunteers have answered the question, what's your something? Like Ralph said, everybody can do something. And so they want to share what their something is. My name is Ronald. And I'm Abigail. And our something is cooking a meal once a month. We're glad we got involved in the care community because it allows us to use our gifts that God's given us to bless another family in need. Hi, my name is Missy Rios, and my something is that I do some behind the scenes coordinating and administration for the fan ministry. I'm glad I joined this ministry because it allows me to encourage and build up the foster and adopt families of our church. Hi, my name is Julio Rios, and my something is that I bring the families that we serve in our community in prayer. I am glad to be part of this ministry because it gives me the opportunity to serve others and also be part of this amazing team. My name is Charlotte Day and my something is being a mentor to one of the children. Uh, mentoring is kind of a broad term that can cover anything from going to the zoo, going to the Pacific Science Center, 
doing homework with them, playing a game with them, basically whatever the family feels like would best meet the needs of the child. And it's been a blessing for me to be part of the care community because I can be a support and an encouragement to the foster and adopt families through prayer and through practical means. Great. So Rosie, uh, you've got a orientation coming up for more volunteers. Tell us a little bit more about that. We do. We actually have two orientations to make sure that we're able to hit everybody. So we have one next Sunday um, at one o'clock, so right after second service, lunch is provided. And um, that'll be live. It'll be here in the building. And then we have another one the following night that will be um, virtual. So if you are somebody who's participating from home, you can still be part of this. Great. Thanks, Rosie. Well, as we wrap up this morning, um, think about those three things. And if you have one point in your life, or maybe the thought has just kind of been out there, what would it be like to uh, welcome a child into our home? We do those monthly orientations. We have another one coming up. And uh, on your website and on your Facebook page, we have uh, a landing page there that has a, uh, a place where you can sign up just to explore what that looks like. And we do it on Zoom, so it's, it's really easy. It's coming up in the next uh, in November, if you would just like to find out more, even if you're not even thinking about that, but just want to know, what does foster care really look like? We would love to invite you to that orientation. Rosie mentioned the, uh, the care communities, and I think those are such uh, an amazing uh, support. If, if you're not able to welcome a child, but you could bring a meal once a month, or you could help mentor a child, if you could pray uh, for a foster family, the key is that it's coordinated. And then uh, that's, uh, that's also on that landing page. And, so, and also, if you're interested in just uh, donating to support a child, you can do that as well. So it's on the landing page. The landing page is on the Facebook page and on the website. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you are a God who uh, has a place in his heart for uh, vulnerable children and families. And thank you, Lord, for, for initiating that. And thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating the, your ministry before us to those who are uh, really on the edge, Lord. God, we just pray that you would just work in the heart of every person here, that we might all think about what we could do uh, to welcome uh, these deserving children into our homes as well, Lord. We thank you for, for the church, and Lord, we just pray that it will make a difference here in Kent, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.